Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Anthony Stefano, And we spoke about four months ago about a book he had published uh, in 2021. The title of that book is The Deadly Dawn, Vito Genovese, Mafia Boss. And I asked him back to come and talk about this story that I'm very interested in. I'm familiar with Goodfellas, but I was really interested in looking into some of the more detailed elements of the story, which he covers in this book titled The Big Heist, The Real Story of the Lufthansa Heist, the Mafia and Murder. Originally published 2017. There's an audio book for that. Uh, just uh, background for Anthony. Again, Anthony M. Stefano has been a reporter for the past 20 years for Newsday in New York City, specializing in criminal justice and legal affairs. He's the author of The Last Godfather, King of the Godfathers, Mob Killer, The War on Human Trafficking, Gangland New York, among others. He's appeared on biography channel programs as an expert on organized crime and also speaks at academic conferences about crime and human trafficking. As a member of the staff of Newsday, Mr. Stefano was on the team of reporters who won the Pulitzer Prize for Spot News in 1992 for the newspaper's coverage of the Union Square subway crash that happened in 1991. So I mentioned some of the titles of his books. Uh, another one is Top Hoodlum, Frank Costello, Prime Minister of the Mafia, 2018. Also, the most recent prior to the Deadly Dawn was Gotti's Boys, the Mafia crew that killed for John Gotti, who comes up in this story in a kind of secondary role. Uh, for more information about Tony's work and upcoming events, check out www.tonydestefano.com and look for his Facebook pages under Anthony M. Stefano and the King of the Godfathers, which I'll put in the show notes. But again, today we're going to talk about this book titled again, The Big Heist, The Real Story of the LaFonsa Heist, The Mafia and Murder. So Tony Stefano, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me again. Awesome. Well, so people may not have heard our earlier show. Can you do a brief overview of some of your work? You've been in New York City. This event happened in New York City. And then what led you down the road to uh, investigate the Lufthansa heist? Well, in a nutshell, I was uh, at the time of Lufthansa, I was working with uh, uh, something called Fairchild Publications, which was a trade publication, uh, which, among other things, published uh, Women's Wear Daily and some other trade magazines. Uh, we got into the mob stuff by doing a series on organized crime in the garment district, the garment business in New York City, where it had been rife for many years. And um, that's how we got into it. Uh, we did a quick study. We were really babes in the woods, but we had to learn pretty quickly the history of the mafia in New York City and in the garment industry. So that's how I got into it. And uh, one thing led to another. I spent a little bit of time at the Wall Street Journal doing some organized crime reporting. But then in 86, went to Newsday, where I uh, you know been ever since, and uh, written about organized crime, uh, legal affairs, and you know a host of other uh, criminal justice related topics. Uh, that uh, is a broad brush uh, a portrait of you know my career. You mentioned, I think the uh, the previous book we talked about, the Deadly Dawn. That was about Vito Genovese, you know, the namesake of the Genovese crime family, uh, who, you know, was a, uh, a character many people may not focus on, but I've been pleasantly surprised to see that a lot of people are buying the book uh, because Genovese is an interesting character in his own right. Uh, a flawed uh, character in the sense that he caused a lot of his own trouble. He got nabbed in a drug case and that sent him to prison for the rest of his life. Uh, and he had delusions of grandeur in one sense, 
wanted to be like the big boss of New York, but that rubbed people the wrong way. And he didn't really you know, play well with other children in the mob. Let's put it that way. Right. So yeah. that's please continue. Yeah, that's it. For so, Vito. For Vito, right. So for Vito, but you, this story was big news in NYC, the date that the robbery happened, December 11th, 1978. Can you kind of talk about what it was like being in the city at that time and the news surrounding the heist and then lead into the background of yeah, what happened? Like yeah, I can. It, I mean, the, look, the mob had a lot of tentacles in various industries in New York City. And the five families were really probably close to the peak of their power in this period, uh, the, and uh, you know, the Lucchese, the Gambino, the Bonanno, the Genovese, and the Colombo crime families, they were all really at their, I think, the peak. Uh, this was in 78, late 78. And it was through that, that uh, uh, you know, they seemed to have control over a lot of police. There was police corruption, uh, the mob, knew its people in the police department they could work with and be sources of information. So it really was kind of a very raw time in law enforcement in the city. That's not to say, you know, cops weren't doing their job. Uh, they were trying to make cases. But um, the mob, I think at this point, uh, was probably on its uh, final hurrah. Let's put it that way. As we got into the 80s, things started to fall apart. But um, the late 70s, I think, was a interesting time for the mob because they still had a lot of power and a lot of big characters. Right. And some of those you, you cover in this book, right? It's Paul Vario, Jimmy Burke. Can you talk about some of the characters surrounding the heist? Yeah. I mean, Paul Vario was a very important captain in, uh, uh, I believe it was the Casey crime family. And um, uh, he was a real powerful captain. And he had control over a lot of rackets, particularly at the airport. Uh, the other, uh, you know, under him, but not a member of the mafia, was Jimmy Burke, who was the mythical character seen in the movie Goodfellas, uh, played by Robert De Niro, known as Jimmy Conway. Uh, they changed the names for obviously legal reasons. Under Burke or Conway, however you want to call it, there are a lot of other subsidiary characters who played the rackets and were the tough guys. Uh, Tommy DeSimone, Joe Pesci character in the movie Goodfellas. Uh, Henry Hill came in. Uh, and, uh, you know, you had, a, you had a, a hierarchy from Vario on down. And Vario, of course, was a very important mafia figure in one of the five families in New York City. So he had a lot of clout. And uh, he was a guy who had a lot of loyalty. Right, so, so there's this group, and something happens where they get the information about this transfer of unmarked bills into JFK, right? At the That's center. correct. There was a guy working at the airport uh, who uh, tipped off uh, uh, a, a, a businessman in Queens uh, who was into gambling and had a lot of gambling debts and you know, knew a lot of the wise guys about a score, a lot of cash uh, and jewelry. Uh, and uh, I'll give you the, you know, the Cliff Notes version. And so the, the businessman went to Burke and told him about this. And Burke began to put together a, a little uh, syndicate, 
of people to pull off the heist because they had inside information from the airport uh, person about security, alarms, uh, the, the safe room that the money and jewels were going to be kept in, and other things that would help make this, make this heist work. So Burke put together the combination uh, of people. Uh, Henry Hill really wasn't involved, uh, even though the movie Goodfellas suggests that he may have been. He really wasn't involved in the planning of the heist and the execution of the heist. He was, uh, some people didn't like him, they didn't trust him. So he was kept sort of on the side, uh, but he knew what was going on. And then they pulled it off. I mean, Burke pulled together his team with DeSimone and some of the other people, as well as uh, Frank Burke, his son. And they, uh, and apparently Vinny Asaro, uh, a Bonanno crime family member, and they pulled it off. And uh, could they ever do that today? Probably not, because I think the security one would have been much better at the airport. We would have video cameras, license plate readers, uh, better alarm systems, and better reaction uh, by law enforcement. But they pulled it off. And they got away with like over five million in cash and uh, about eight hundred to a million dollars in jewelry. But they, it was kind of a complex system because they had to uh, kind of uh, there were a lot of people working there that they had to apprehend and take hostage, right? Can you kind of talk about the mechanics? Of yeah, getting they, to the they got to, to the that night of the heist. They got in and they got one of the guys who was uh, you know one of the workers at the Lufthansa terminal, and they basically strong armed him and threw him in the back of the truck. Uh, so he couldn't tip off anybody that, you know, something was going on, that there was, you know, thieves outside. They got in because there was really no warning. And they got in into the uh, Lufthansa facility and really basically just overpowered everybody. They were armed. Uh, they were masked for the most part, although some of them took their masks off. And that, you know, became interesting later on because... Uh, Cops were able to get some sketches of some of these uh, heist guys, and mainly DeSimone. And they overpowered everybody. Uh, had at least one person get them to the safe room and disarm the alarm. And they got into the safe room, got the cash, uh, opened up the plastic uh, packages, which had about $168,000, I think, in cash uh, within each one. And they knew they were golden and they got the jewelry. They packed everything up. They wrapped everybody up, all the workers, they tied them up, took their licenses so that they, the workers knew that the, the gangsters knew who they were and left. Eventually, one of the workers was able to muscle his way free of his shackles and call the Port Authority security. And after that, but then it was too late because these guys were gone and they went out to do, exited the airport and got to uh, you know secondary location and started giving up the uh, the proceeds and that that's how it happened right so they, my understanding was is they didn't expect to have 6 million like they didn't expect to have that big of a haul is that right yeah that, that's that's what i've heard they didn't expect to have that much money i think they thought maybe 3 3 million but uh, after they started opening these blister packs of cash started to realize, you know, uh, this is golden, folks. You know, we got a lot here. 
And uh, it was a lot of money. But then it was a lot of money. Even now it's a lot of money. Right. I think it's like twice that amount of money taking it for tax. I mean, inflation or whatever. Oh, sure. sure. Yeah. And how did that? How did that kind of news go through the media in New York City when that happened? Oh, it was big news! Big news. The next morning, early morning radio shows, uh, the papers uh, had a, you know big block uh, type headlines on the front page about about the heist, and uh, uh, you know it really was a story that just went through the city. It was so brazen. Some people really, you know, favored the gangsters in this case because they were able to pull it off. So there was more power to them, so to speak. But it really was a, uh, a crime that, uh, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say shocked. I, mean, I suppose shocked, but, uh, um, you know, rocketed through the city. And it did for many years. I think it's still one of the great mob crimes. Um, and so what happened next after the news hit, it caused pro the, the turbulence within the group of gangsters started almost immediately, right? Yeah. I mean, what happened was, of course, uh, some of these gangsters took their masks off during the heist. And some of the hostages, as, as you know, the airport workers, were able to provide police with descriptions so that the police artists could do sketches. So you knew basically, you know, who you were looking for. And actually through the mob intelligence networks and through the FBI informants, they had a pretty good sense right away that it was Jimmy Burke's crew that, that was involved. They're not enough to make a case, but that was enough to point them in the right direction. Um, things started to happen because Stax Edwards, uh, uh, he was an African-American, uh, uh, I guess musician, was working with the gang, uh, was supposed to get rid of the van that was used in the heist, but he didn't. Instead, he went to his girlfriend's uh, to shack up for the night. And the van was illegally parked and the cops ticketed it and they found it right away because of match descriptions. And they started dusting it for prints. So they were getting prints off the van. Um, Stax, you know, in the movie, Goodfellas, Stax was killed. Uh, uh, he was executed because of his screw up. But in reality, I think what happened was that he shot his mouth off some days after that at a Christmas party. Uh, and he said something about, I want some of this money that you Italian guys got from the airport. And Paul Varrier was within earshot. And uh, the story is that he said, oh, he's got to go. And Stax was, was summarily killed. And actually, it was the gangsters paid for Stax's funeral. They felt a little bad about it. But some of the, the way, can you talk about how the money was intended to be divided up and, and included and sent out to the crime family and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, look, the participants were supposed to get a cut. You know, how much would you know, vary between uh, individuals? Uh, the jewelry was used as a... Uh, as like a tribute payment for some gangsters. Uh, story is John Gotti got some. Uh, Joe Messino of the Bonanno family got some. And uh, some may have gone to the Colombo crime family as well. Uh, but the money was supposedly divided up. And Burke, uh, of course, didn't do an equitable split. Some guys didn't get all their money that, were, that was due to them. Some got none. 
And uh, you know, that created some resentment and rancor. And the story was that Burke kept a large share of the money. Others like Vinnie Asaro got some, but Burke was supposedly the one who had most of the money. Uh, did they ever find the money? Uh, not to anybody's knowledge. The jewelry, that's gone, that's dissipated. That's, you know, you'll never find that. So the money, uh, again, has never been confiscated or recovered. It was a lot right. of money. Right. And so they, Burke kept the money, was really paranoid about his crew, and people were talking and things became a curse, right, for the participants. Yeah. Evening. That's true. As you saw in Goodfellas, and some instances are true. Some of these participants were spending some of their money. Uh, others, Burke got very paranoid about because he basically realized there were a lot of people involved and a lot more people who were potential informants or cooperating witnesses if they ever got caught. Um, so people started to die. And, um, uh, you know, they were found all over the city for many, many months, you know, homicide victims. And uh, broadly speaking, what you saw in Goodfellas was true, uh, but there was some, you know, film license in some of the some of the executions. But it was a curse. I mean, people got jammed up or died, and Vinnie Sauer didn't die. He got some money, according to the testimony in the case, uh, his trial, and um, you know, did something with it. But it was a curse to him because he really never had. He was, it was quoted as saying, I never really, never really got from Jimmy Burke what we were supposed to get. And uh, that showed that, you know, Burke was really uh, squandering uh, and, uh, uh, you know, profiting much more than anybody else. And he, and he so uh, this is the guy who puts together the squad. And eventually, I think almost all of that squad ended up getting murdered, right? Except yeah. Yeah, you, you can go through it. They're, you know, they started dying fairly soon afterwards. De Simone got killed, but perhaps not for reasons of uh, 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 his involvement in the heist, but it may have been something to do with his uh, a problem killing a member of the Gambino crime family uh, without permission some years earlier. So he had some issues. So he may have died because of other things he did. But everybody else who was dying, uh, you know, uh, they, they pretty much, I, I would say about, about four or five murders that I can, I can uh, put my finger on. Right, so Kefora and his wife, Joe Manry, Paolo Castro, Robert McMahon, eventually they got rubbed out. So it's really kind of like being involved in that case. Yeah, it's like King Tut's curse. Yeah, it was a curse. <laughs> and so... You know, you bring out that you talk about this guy Vincent Acero. There, nobody's the FBI really wants them, but they don't have enough evidence. They never had any evidence to take anybody to trial until 2014, right? Yeah, what happened was they did a case uh, about Acero. Uh, there was only one trial previously involving Lufthansa, uh, which are the low level airport guy uh, who was the tipster, so to speak. Uh, was was convicted. Lewis none Warner, of the other big guys. Yeah, yeah, Warner and uh, you know Burke wasn't charged with it. Uh, Sarah at that time wasn't charged with it. 
None of the other people were charged. Or they were trying to make cases. Uh, they couldn't get enough together to, 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 to make a case. It was a difficult. You know, the electronic surveillance at the time was not like you, you have today. It was, um, uh, you know, uh, technically not as good. Uh, the surveillance methods were not as sharp. Um, uh, so it was difficult. But by 2014 or so, the FBI got uh, uh, Gaspar Valente, Vinia Serra's cousin, as an informant. And Valente was, uh, uh, you know, down on his luck, had no money, needed a grub stake. So he decided to become a cooperating witness. And his big get for the FBI was his cousin, Vinia Serra, who uh, the FBI believes, the police believe. Uh, I think the trial evidence showed, uh, appeared to have been involved in the heist. But he was acquitted. He was acquitted. They went to trial in 2015 and they resurrected the old Lufthansa case. And everybody said, oh my God, after all these years, we're going to have a trial. Uh, and you, most people thought they had a pretty good case because they had tapes that sort of suggested that Asara knew and participated. They had the Valente's testimony, they had some you know, collateral testimony. But the case, didn't gel. I think part of the reason was because Asaro now was the eldest statesman. He was about close to 80 years old. And he was in the courtroom just by himself. There was nobody else charged uh, in his indictment. Nobody else went to trial. And nobody else was accused of Lufthansa. So the jury, I think, looked at him and said, yeah, this is this one guy, and uh, we're going to hang everything on him. And I think that played into it. I think the the fact that maybe they didn't like the fact that his cousin was informing on him in such a mercenary way, I think may have graded against the uh, the jury. And I think the defense did a good job of creating reasonable doubt about some of the testimony. And uh, I also think, and this is hadn't been brought out much before, but it's in the book. The case was very complicated. They had unrelated charges in there, trying to show that Sarah was a big gangster. At one time, he was, but uh, he really was down on his luck. And a lot of that stuff just really didn't make any sense in putting this case together for trial. So in the end, what happened? Sarah got acquitted. And he walked out of the court. I remember that day very distinctly because everybody was expecting a guilty finding. Uh, but I said to myself, you know, there's a little window that Sarah could wiggle through uh, in terms of the proof in this case. And of course, he's denied ever having any participation in the heist, denied testimony against him. And he got acquitted. And he got acquitted. And uh, he walked out of the courtroom, the happiest man in the world. Uh, you know, he'd been in jail for about two years. So, what kind of evidence did they bring up in that 2014 case? New evidence. Well, they had Gaspar Valente's tapes of Asaro, in which Asaro suggested that he knew about the heist and complained about not getting his cut. Um, and that—that's you know, and the tapes 
and you know Valente's realization uh, or recollections of what was going on at the time. Um, those were the main bits of evidence. Uh, but like I said, it wasn't enough. Um, and and what, was, what happened to Jimmy Burke over that time? Like he ended up going to jail, but not for the Lufthansa, right? Yeah, Jimmy Burke went to jail uh, on a couple of other things. One was a homicide case of a, they killed a drug dealer. And another was uh, in the Boston College basketball fixing case. And he didn't get as much time as a homicide, which sent him to state prison for life. But he never got convicted of uh, any involvement in Lufthansa, Jimmy Burke. And he died in prison. I think it was 1996, if I'm correct. Did they ever, how many people did they tie to him who got killed? I mean, he was basically a serial killer, right? Of sorts. I would say a good half dozen. Yeah. It's incredible. And uh, <clears throat> the what happened kind of as far as like uh, Samantha's asking, did Jimmy keep all the money for himself? No, he didn't keep all the money. He kept a large portion of it. Um, testimony at the Sarah's trial showed that a Sarah got some. Some of the other people got some. Uh, uh, I think Valente kept some in his house. Didn't get a hell of a lot. Um, and the jewelry, of course, you know, went to as tribute to various other crime families, bosses and captains, you know, Gotti and Messino. And I think some of the Colombo crime family too. So it was almost kind of like worth all the crime families' while to make sure a lot of the, the actual burglars or gangsters got got whacked, right? Because then, then nothing would lead back to them. Well, certainly from Burke from Burke's point of view, I think he was paranoid uh, and realized that uh, he has to cut cut ties with anybody connected to the heist that he was not confident about. Uh, so, you know, people started to die. And uh, <laughs> that shows you, you know, there's really no, uh, no honor among thieves. No, uh, no protection of life. And then Paul Katz, what was his involvement? He, there was like a more recent within the last 10 years, they were looking for his body too, right? Oh, Paul Katz. Paul Katz's body. Um, Paul Katz was a Sort of hanger on, a trucker who was like a hanger on and part time hijacker for, for Burke and his crew. Um, the cats, Burke got very skittish about cats and believed that cats was going to, and may in fact already been, uh, an informant for the police. So they killed cats. Uh, the testimony was that he was strangled. And then the testimony at the Saros trial was that Katz was buried in the basement of a home of a relative in Queens, uh, basement of a home of a relative of the Saro uh, in Queens, sort of the Ozone Park area, uh, and in the concrete for many years until Burke got worried that they might find that body. So he had a couple of his people 
including Vinnie Asaro's son, dig it up and take the remains upstate or in, in some other place for disposal. The thing was they didn't clean out the burial pit totally. And the FBI, when it learned from Valente about the burial, uh, dug it up and they found bones. And a forensic anthropologist from the New York City Medical Examiner not only identified them as human, but through DNA analysis, they identified them as being that of Paul Katz. So that ratified or corroborated some of Valente's testimony, which made him appear, you know, as a, as a valuable witness. Uh, so, you know, they found, they found Paul Katz's remains, some of them anyway, and they gave him, you know, gave it back to his family. And the family, I think, took care of it, did a burial. And then kind of the, the story that's in Godfather is Henry Hill at some point flipped, right, and went into the witness protection program and testified against Burke and Paul Vario, right? Since yeah, what happened, yeah, what happened was uh, Henry Hill got jammed up on a Long Island uh, drug case, and it was public at that point. And that was against the, you know, long-time stricture of the mob that you don't get involved in drugs. Now, that was a fiction, because I think everybody knows that the mob for many decades was involved in drugs, narcotics, off the books, sort of unofficially. But in any case, Henry Hill got arrested on a drug case. And uh, that soured his relationship with not only Paul Vario, but also with Jimmy Burke, who realized that, hey, Henry Hill has uh, got a case, a serious case against him. Is he going to flip? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Burke, uh, well, this is Henry Hill's supposition that Burke wanted him, was going to have him killed. Somebody was going to have him killed. So he decided to become a state's witness for the FBI. He uh, gave him some stuff on Lufthansa. Like I said, he really didn't have that much inside information about Lufthansa and how it went down and the planning. But he had a lot of mental information. He had information about the, uh, uh, the Boston College basketball uh, uh, case uh, and other, other crimes. There were other crimes he was involved in. So he was able to... Uh, uh, become an effective witness in some ways, uh, ineffective in some cases. Uh, and, but still, is, it, is, it, is it true that Hill and Burton could not be made members because they weren't 100% Italian? That's true, yeah. The, the scripture, or the rule in the mafia is that you have to have, uh, uh, I think your mother has to be Italian. Uh, it's matrimonial. Become a member. Uh, so... <laughs> They were Irish, uh, and uh, uh, if I have this right, you know, they, they were ethnically excluded. They could be associates and very good ones, but they, they couldn't be in the mob. And um, the story that I found that was interesting, so the story about Spider that's in Goodfellas is a true story involving Tommy Simone, right? Yeah, he did shoot and kill somebody in the basement of the uh, club. And the story was that they buried this guy in the club. 
in the basement on the floor. Uh, well, years later, the FBI acting on tips went in uh, uh, and dug up the floor. And the only bones they found were those of a cow, because that area of, of Brooklyn and sort of bordering Queens was uh, uh, at one point farmland. So you dig down deep enough, you, you don't know what you're going to find. They didn't find any human remains. It's just so many rooms were surrounding these guys. It really is incredible. Yeah, I know. Well, this is the, the period of the mob where murders were happening a lot. The murders happened in the mob, you know, for decades, up until probably uh, about the late 1990s. They started to taper off at that point. But 70s, 80s, 60s, you know, a lot of people were getting killed. It's just incredible. Sometimes for very trivial reasons, you know. Right. I mean, it just seems like these, some of these guys, they just all ended a terrible uh, demise. Like, even Burke ended up in jail, but every other one of them got killed for one reason or another. Murdered after yeah. robbing a drug dealer, dismemberment, yeah. like really horrible stuff. Yeah, dismemberment was uh, something that went Teresa on. Ferraro. Teresa Ferraro. Yeah, Teresa Ferraro, a, I believe a girlfriend of De Simone at one point. Uh, there was suspicion that she was becoming a cooperating witness. So she left her beauty salon or whatever, and I think it was in Queens or Brooklyn, and was never seen again until her body parts washed up off, off the Jersey coast. Yeah, Pretty lady, you know, played with a mob. Uh, and that's what happens, you know, these, uh, these women, not all of them, but some of them get tied in with these guys. And it's an interesting, exciting life, a lot of money, a lot of glamour, a lot of respect on the street. But in the end, you know, you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're dead. It's a great she point. The only, the only woman who died. Right. In this case, or this situation, it was Teresa Ferrara, Joanna Lombardo, and Joanna Cofora, all right. with their husbands and their boyfriends. And then they ended up in the worst you that's know, right. yeah. circumstances. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a lesson, right? Yeah, it's dangerous. And we were talking in the pre-show. This, this reminds me of, I was watching a documentary about the break-in, the bank break-in at the federal bank in Brazil, and these guys got 161 million reals, like a huge amount of money, but it just ended up as a curse. And when one of the head leaders got arrested by the cops, he's like, thank God this is over. Put me in jail. I do not want to be out here. Everybody knows I have this money. My family members are getting abducted. My friends are getting killed. It just it created so much uh, jealousy and greed and lust and all that stuff. And all these, and they're just like this case. There are tons of dead bodies, tons of missing people in this Brazil case. And uh, what were the consequent, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the, the, uh, the story and all this mob stuff. Uh, these guys, uh, they do these big crimes. They don't involve just one person. They involve a whole bunch of conspirators and uh, the Confederates. And at some point, you know, everybody's gonna look at everybody else and say, oh, is he gonna flip? Or should I take care of him? Joe Messino was famous for that. A lot of people died, uh, were connected to him. So, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's supposed to be a life of loyalty, but it really, in the end, isn't. Right. It's like the, the, the whole, the, the surface, it's honor, respect, but everybody on the in the real world, man, early ends. Some of these bodies are never found. It's really incredible. That's true. Um, yeah. 
Tony, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap this up? Well, I mean, um, the, the, the Lufthansa case, the Lufthansa heist, is one that's firmly uh, embedded in our, you know, popular culture. Um, you know, you have the movie Goodfellas, uh, Nick Pelleggi's book, Wise Guys, uh, you know, is framed around it in part. And it really is, I think, emblematic of a time when the mob was in its final heyday. Uh, they pulled it off. They pulled it off because I think law enforcement, to some extent, wasn't able to cope with this kind of thing. It was a brazen plan. Uh, and the, the, they had it together enough that they were able to pull it off. Um, I don't think they could do this today. I don't think, I'm not saying there couldn't be a ripoff through other methods uh, at the airport or any other place, uh, but I think it would be done differently. I think probably it would be done with you know, paper transactions, uh, fraud, uh, something that doesn't take such a big strong arm, uh, uh, you know, tactic. Uh, but you know, we then again, <laughs> today in New York City and other places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, talk about strong arm tactics. You have these grab and smash and grab Absolutely. robberies, sometimes taking significant amounts of jewelry and uh, items from stores. So, you know, I, I can't say that this strong arm stuff is passe, but uh, certainly I think for the, the old gangsters, I think you're not going to see this. This is time stamp of the age. And where's the best place to get the book? I know it's on Amazon. You have an audio book of this as well. There's a lot yeah, more details. Amazon, yeah, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, some bookstores will have it. They can get it for you. Um, and, uh, you know, it's out there. So you can get it. It's still current. Yeah, and there's a lot more details about this whole story that you have. Outside of the film, there's a lot more uh, things going on under the surface. And the best place to reach you, Tony, is at your website, TonyDeStefano.com, correct? That's correct. Yeah, T-O-N-Y, DeStefano, last name, .com. And uh, that's the best way. So I'm on Facebook also, as you said, uh, is either Anthony M. DeStefano or... Tony DeStefano. Either one. Work. And I will put those links into the show notes. So if people have follow-up questions, please reach out to Tony. And again, the title of the book that we talked about today is The Big Heist, The Real Story of the LaFonsa Heist, The Mafia, and Murder, originally published 2017 by Tony DeStefano. Thanks so much for your time, Tony. No, thank you. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there.